Hello, hello, and welcome from the Golan Heights. It's your episode for this week. I'm here in the saddle, as always, with Samai Deng. Samai, hello, how do you, you do? You should pass me back those copies of the little red book. We gotta redistribute them to the members of the PFLP yeah. that are waiting out back. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a very busy week for us. Um, so, uh, joining us today is Hisote, who is a scholar and an activist in Chiang Mai who works with ethnic minorities, and that's predominantly upland minorities, is that right? Sure, yeah, you can say that. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. So um, today we're talking about, uh, well, actually, you know, just want to get one thing out of the way. Uh, We're talking about what many people will know as hill tribe people, and we don't really like that word at all. Um, We prefer upland people or maybe kondoi or something like that. and actually, just to get derailed quite quickly early on, I was talking to an English person the other day about Isan, and I was explaining how they're ethnically Lao, and he asked me, like, uh, yeah, but what tribe are they from? And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you got those two over there. <laughs> sucks. Um, anyway, so we brought in Hisote uh, here into Bandindeng to talk about the upland Karen town of... How is this pronounced? Cam- Cambodian? Is uh, that right? Gabodin. Gabu. Gabodin. Yeah, okay. Gabu. Uh, which is in Omkhoi in Chiang Mai province. Yeah. And so right now there's a project to basically nuke the town and turn it into a coal mine. Um, so, Hisote, do you want to kind of start off by telling us about Omkhoi kind of pre-mine? Because I've never actually been there. I've been nearby, but I'm wondering what the place is, what the place is like and what, what, what are the people like there? Oh, well, it's, it's pretty far away from uh, any urban center. A lot of dirt roads. Um, they do got electricity. Uh, the people, you know, it's just like any, any other nice kind of rural village in the mountains, you know, very scenic, natural, you know, nice air, you know, <laughs> you got the streams, you got all the the nice crops they got everywhere and and the village, you know, the community itself too, you know, welcoming of everyone of everyone. So just uh I guess even now, right? So they do a lot of, you know, they do that shifting cultivation. They grow a lot of crops also to sell, you know, they do some terrace rice farming. Um, and they're a self-sustaining community. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know if we should, if anyone's really self-sustaining these days, right? But sure. But yeah, you know, they they probably grow for themselves first, and then hmm. sell, you know, surplus, and then try to buy some other stuff, you know. So, like, something I found in these communities is that there's kind of this almost this contradiction, like is often they're in like incredibly beautiful areas, areas of great beauty and abundance in terms of the ecology and the nature that surrounds them. But then at the same time, the local people are often living in poverty, the very, very poor people. So like, I imagine this is the same thing there, right? Yeah, and it's, I guess it's what perspective you wanna, you know, get at, you know, like what exactly is this poverty, right? Because a lot of them don't want this kind of development, right? They don't want the roads and kind of this modern, what we think is, you know, modern. And I mean, of course they want kind of medicine, you know, and these things, but a lot of these indigenous groups, you know, they, they're kind of critiquing the Western style of progress, right? Development. So, um, mm. 
but it's not you know you can't really say they all are the same right you'll have even within the community you'll have different opinions yeah. and power relations so you know there'll probably be some people who want all these things and maybe even want the mine right because they, they want mm. jobs or something right what happened in memo and um you know and then you have other you know groups i guess i guess i've heard like the you know neo indigenous type of thing you know get back to the roots and critique development so you have this group mm. right and then they're all kind of influenced by uh, all the outsiders who go right as well all the ngos you know capacity building and teaching them how to express their own problems in a different way right so uh, it's pretty difficult right to see exactly what they want yeah. right and be a representative of them or speak for them yeah if you recall back to the sort of episode where we did um, Thailand as a settler colonial state god damn it um, that those subaltern groups that sort of still exist within the I guess the, I guess the framework of like of the uh, of the of the Thai state they, they still manage to practice um, I, I don't want to say the word tradition but they that their, their systems and relations still um, haven't been aligned necessarily with the, the the Thai state ideology and so you know their practices as a subaltern group will con- continue to be a uh, sort of a check to that to that to that power to that legitimacy so uh, uh, that's an important thing from from what I can gather yeah. and um, so I mean and this kind of brings into sharp focus the issue of the mine um, now this project to build a mine there has been going on for quite a while um, I think it started in 2000 right um, could you kind of tell us like how the decision was made to build a mine there and some of the tactics that the mining company and the state have used to get kind of, you know, fool these people, basically, from what I understand? Yeah, so I guess in 2000, right, some of these articles have wrote about this and the locals also told me some. But yeah, I guess they were trying to do this, you know, I guess this company, uh, I'm, I'm going to say it even though I'm a bit afraid, but this company... Thai business. Mm. Um, I guess you know they went in there looking at at the land, right, to see if it was uh, had any potential and if there's you know resources there, right. And I guess they would lie, you know, not really lie, but they would they wouldn't express their their motivations, you know, behind uh, buying some of this property from the from the community. So so they started going in there buying up buying up property. If anything, it was always maybe a minority of people who would be willing. Because they don't have mm. land titles as well. So, you know, it feels right. like maybe they don't know, like, this might be sketchy. Can we actually sell land that's not ours as well? You know? Mm. But they would say, right, like, if you don't sell, we'll take it anyway. And you won't get any money, you know? So it seems like kind of pretty common, I think, how this is done. Especially with yeah. these kind of groups who don't speak Thai, you know. Or maybe they do, but the elders don't, right? And... And I mean, just to unders- underscore it, like this is, you know, it, this is these are pretty vulnerable people when coming up against like a very high powered mining company with corporate offices in Bangkok compared to an incredibly rural group who, like you say, aren't even Thai, have very little contact with the Thai state. I mean, you know, it's it's easy to, you know, I don't want to say swindle them, but yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. right. And it seems like they always have this kind of like just extreme respect towards outsiders right like oh they have education they are like sometimes it seems like they you know they respect too much you know i remember sometimes i would go and they would always say ajan to me 
you know? And I'm, I'm not Ajahn, you know? I'm just here to study. I'm, I'm here to learn from you. I'm, I'm just some student, yeah. you know? Yeah. And if you have some big company... <laughs> yeah, I, I got the same thing with, like, um, a lot of, like, uh, migrant workers from Burma who I would speak to in Thai, and they would call me P, even though I was older than them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's... it's oh, no, well, that's, that's, that sounds correct. No. You oh, no, sorry. They were older than me. Sorry. Oh, I got yeah. it the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's awkward. Um, so, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, really. Go on. Um, yeah, and then I guess it seemed like no one really heard about it again, this project. In the articles, you know, it said 2011, it was approved by the government. And I guess they were conducting an EIA. But I don't understand yeah. really... During this time, those 10 years, they were doing an EIA, so I don't know, it seems like we, there was Can we no, explain what an EIA is? Yeah, it stands for um, Environmental Impact Assessment, and generally, um, it's a type of like a UN kind of concept, right, where in order to do some mega project, or maybe even a small-scale development project, you have to get a EIA, right? The company has to get an EIA. And many other ones too. They have the SIA, Social Impact Assessment. But the company has to get it, and they have they go through. They pay for this, right? And they pay these like consultancy agencies who do this. So it's kind of you don't know if there's some what's going on there. You know, like there's definitely potential for sketchy yeah, stuff to happen, sure. right? Yeah. In terms of just granting them paying for. Uh, social report or an environmental report when really the criteria hasn't been met at all oh, the, the, the other weird thing is that um instead of it because because eia is supposed to serve as like um us checking the um the direction of of a company say for example but yeah. nowadays you like when i left bangkok i saw billboards that had eia's like like on on their development projects they had they, they mentioned like they'd done an eia things about EIA so now it's like also they they've they're starting to use it as a way to um sort of I don't know make their development they they have to advertise it basically so they can yeah. they can seem green as well sure. uh, yeah it's kind of green oh so it's like a greenwashing yeah thing yeah as yeah well. so so it, it's it's sort of been like subtly co-opted yeah, in that exactly. way mm. yeah. yeah like everything seems like right <laughs> that's just it's true yeah. <laughs> this is true whatever we do they co-opt it so they came up with this proposal to build this mine and can you kind of explain like some of the damage that this would do to the village and the surrounding area in terms of the people and the ecology um well so it's the project is about 280 rai, right um it's pretty big which is in uh can we can we get that in a in a uh, imperialist uh <laughs> unit of measurement i think 45 hectares is that what it HA? Right. I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Is HA supposed to be Hector? Yeah. So that's, More um, like in terms of square kilometers, that's um, 0.448 square kim. Okay, and that's just for the mine itself. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, so I mean, yeah, so some of the impacts is, I guess there's, because they rely on um, the streams there, right? Because they do, mm -hmm. you know, terrace agriculture, terrace uh, rice farming. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the rain. Right, so they need um, irrigation, and they get their water from from the streams, right? And those streams will be in that area, and they'll be affected by mm. whatever uh, wastes come from that. Yeah, yeah and then I guess some other things like dust, 
right? Because they have to transport it to the main road, which is a long way, and they're dirt roads. And I guess six communities will be impacted. It's not just Gabadin. Um, they got, like they said, 41 plots will, will be lost. And, is um, that 41 homes? I don't know. They got, they just, I just read plots. <laughs> I don't know exactly okay. how big if it's, but I mean, it's for them, you know, that's the thing about these numbers things, right, is, you know, maybe for us it does, it seems small, right? But for them, it's like their whole livelihood. Yeah. So, I mean, would it wipe the village completely off the face of the earth or would the village theoretically still be able to survive? I'm not sure exactly. I couldn't tell you for sure. And the local people don't know either. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, rhetoric going around, you know, so. But no one really knows exactly how it's going to happen, you know. And But I'm pretty sure, yeah, like they'll lose their livelihood, you know. And so what has been the response of the local people once they found out about this? Because they didn't realize about these plans for quite a while, right? Yeah, it was right on like 20 years later, almost 19 years. Yeah, so they found, you know, I guess in their um, municipal office over there, there was a, a notice saying, you know, that we have, that we, they want to meet everyone to tell them about this project that's already been kind of uh, accepted, Re-invited. right? Yeah. And that's when they found out, right? And then right away they started kind of organizing. Some youth groups started organizing everyone, getting everyone together. Seems like a month afterward, they already start setting up a network of anti-mine, what is it, the anti-mine, Omkoi um, anti-mine network, mm-hmm. or network to end. I don't know, all these different translations, right? Sure. But, I mean, they've been doing a lot of things, right? So a lot of going around to all the small villages, you know, and communities around there, uh, kind of spreading the knowledge, what's going on. Eventually, you know, during, um, I guess it was World Environment Day, they got 2,000 people to come together show their opposition for that day, right? World Environment Day. And sorry, how many people live in the village? Gabadin. It's just like you got these hamlets, you know, like even smaller than the village. So it's, Mm. I'm not sure exactly, to tell you the truth. Maybe less than a thousand? Yeah, for sure. At least the main area, maybe 500 or 300 or something. A couple households, not many households. Yeah, so I mean, that was pretty big, you know, just to see them. And these are kids, you know, these are middle school kids. Seemed like they were quickly able to get everyone together and uh, unite for this cause. Yeah, so they go to the city center, I guess, the district center to show, you know, show their opposition. And it's been kind of activities like this for a while. You know, every couple months, there's something big. They find out about some new meeting. Maybe the government says you can't go about it like this. You know, so then they said, you know, they can't postpone the meeting, you know, because the locals, maybe they hear about a meeting with the company and find out maybe they're not informed yet on all the information. So they need more time to, you know, prepare. And then the government or the, the company will say, you know, this is not how it works. You know, you have to go through this certain system, you know. Um, so then they just go and disrupt the meeting. Right? It's mostly young people, you said? The leaders seem like the youth group wow. is mostly done by the youth group. Um, at least the locals. You got all the NGOs and you know CBOs coming in, giving their input and helping them. You know, capacity training and teaching them. I guess how to. It sounds like you're not a fan. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so um, I mean, I've also heard about the some of the 
protest organizers or the community organizers are being harassed by maybe the police, maybe private citizens who are paid to harass them. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, when I first went there and I was kind of taking pictures of these kind of workshops they were doing, and I took some pictures of the actual EIA report, this big book, and it showed the company name. And when I kind of posted it, uh, some of the locals or the, the leaders, youth group, they were like, hey, please, can you take that down? You know, da-da-da. I said, all right, you know, I understand. But it Can seemed, you explain why? Yeah, I guess this is related to the SLAP law. Yeah, so this, the slander law. Yeah, yeah, slander law, right? I guess it, it stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation, right? So it's oh. where... It's where these big kind of companies just sue you, you know, into debt, you know, and they just keep it going forever. For defamation. Yeah, for defamation. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, um, but some of the leaders did this, right? They also posted, they posted the, the name, right? The, and, um, yeah, they charged these two guys. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's still going on. And so what about the harassment? I mean, they're just... Uh, you know, getting them with this defamation law, right? The slap law, right? And then mm. it kind of uses up a lot of resources, financial resources from the NGOs, from civil society that's trying to help them, the lawyers. And as far as I know, it's still going. They keep on denying it. They're saying that this is just, we didn't say anything that's acute, like, um, like they're not accusing it. They're just saying, right? Like this, this company, you could see it, this company did the EIA, right? But we're not saying any lies, right? Mm. So they keep on denying it, but they, they're they like following the procedure, right? They're going to the, you know, meeting the lawyers, you know? So they, it seems just to drag it out, right? Like another strategy. It kind of seems of, like, yeah, it kind of seems like one, one, two, but against businesses, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot of people, right? There was another guy who just got some British, right? Labor activists. I think the it was pineapple similar. Company. Yeah, the pineapple. Uh, yeah. Oh! Uh, Samai, did you have... Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that, that, this wasn't... <laughs> or something like that. It was that yeah. company. Yeah, that, that, that guy that, that guy is a master. That guy is a master. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to have to beep out these company names to be safe. <laughs> well, yeah, again, about this harassment, right? As far as I know, like, they would be posting a lot of... I wasn't there when this happened, but... I guess last year, you know, for a, for a while these, you know, I don't know who they are, but these trucks, right, would just go and drive into the village, right? And maybe some uniformed, some not, and kind of just asking, you know, who's in charge, I guess, and, you know, just trying to get information from the locals of who's kind of leading this this thing, right? And So it's like a intel, in, intel, but in a very intimidating way, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. that's, that's quite classic. I, I've I've even I've experienced that personally in like these kind of areas like the police will like very heavy handedly and clumsily show up and do like very clumsy questioning where uh, yeah it's almost like they, they they it's quite silly actually when you actually see it because like you kind of think of these operations as being you know quite slick and you know they maybe they've got under cover agents or something like that but in reality quite more often than not they'll just like shop in a massive fucking pickup truck and like it's stand in the sure. middle of the town with their uniforms and just pull people aside and question them yeah, yeah. yeah that's what it seemed like yeah 
looking at these. Yeah. Very, very conspicuous, not very subtle. Uh, at all. Uh, no, but I think, you know, like the, the shock of the, oh my god, people just showed up in the fucking. Yeah. In a pickup truck to ask us questions. Like, no, uh, we're all disoriented and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it also kind of shows the way the police see themselves. Like, oh, we can <laughs> just roll up in a place and be I, ourselves. I'm the sheriff of this town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I think for some of these, for some of these, like, you know, far out communities, they don't really know how to you know they i mean now they're probably learning right but when they see these people they they fear like if i don't if i don't cooperate i'll get in trouble right and then if i Cause, cause in any way I, i'll be, get in trouble right or something would it be right yeah. to think that like this the the police that go out to see them are, are are probably the most consistent representation of the thai state they they come into contact with or do they have like a is there like a Okay, okay, you're nodding, so yeah. Because, like, that would make sense then in in terms of relatively, uh, sort of relative importance of the police to them versus the relative importance of the police, office, of a police officer to anyone living in, like, I mean, I would guess even Chiang Mai. Yeah. You know what I mean? The lowlands. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, I could understand then why you would maybe be intimidated or concerned or, or afraid okay. by a pickup truck with two police officers because like oh shit you know this is this they, they don't usually send people out for us but when they do there's something happening so yeah 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 because they they don't have police station in these little villages right these villages kind of deal with it themselves you know imagine self-governing yeah. yeah another thing I, I read um at least with i guess we can just edit it out right <laughs> if, if it's too much right but so this was Greenpeace. They they said that this, um, or I guess this uh, company will be sending the coal to company, right? And yeah, we kind of know who that's owned by, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess it's you know we can see the kind of the commodity chain, you know, and who's kind of really behind all this, you know, and this coal. I mean, um, oh yeah, but the they I saw like they they came out with a public response saying no. This is, we don't buy from, you know, companies that have not gone through these kind of environmental and social procedures, right? Um, That's fucking rich when you, if you've, have you ever been to Saraburi? No. Which is where their, where their biggest plants are. My God, the place is like a hellscape of cement. It's really depressing. So that's pretty ironic. Saying that you care about the environment. Yeah, and this, this I was looking too, like, because I guess it's, it's about, because they're saying this is green coal, right? Mm. And I guess, uh, like, that's Nan an Mo, American thing. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll take it. But um, yeah, I guess there's like four types of coal, right? And the dirtiest type is this uh, lignant, and this is at Mall. It's the most common type. It's the some dirty type, right? And then we got dirty, dirty. At Omkoi, uh, they have this special, like, one category better as in like a little cleaner so i think this is what they're trying to do of like oh it's green coal because it's a little better than than this other one they're literally greenwashing the coal yeah yeah i guess one last thing i don't know if we can go too much you know just one little thing that i think the locals might want people to know is there's another mm. big project coming and they're starting to prepare for this and this is what from um kind of the Salawin river to the bumipong mm. dam they're making a mm like a transfer station so like now they're starting to prepare to you know to contest two different projects right so that um, would that would affect uh omkoi region as well yeah it seems like it's gonna pass right through it 
And this has also been, you know, maybe 20 years in the making, you know, and it's just now that people are hearing about it. I mean, I think the kind of theme of this story is really, uh, it's something that uh, Mean, who does the Thai version of the podcast, which all our Thai listeners should listen to, uh, always talks about, which is uh, Capitalo parliamentary system, which is kind of um, government working with large private corporations like hand in glove. So is it, essentially what that means is that it's the government's job to make big business life very easy for big business and that's exactly yeah. what they're doing in pretty much the most awful way possible which is extraction and destroying the environment yeah yeah for sure yeah the state facilitating the creation of new markets just markets that are already there right that's i guess that's kind of what the capitalist state is all about and also you you know it's like it's the resources on another level like these resources coal even though you know maybe we don't like these resources because they're dirty or whatever but at the same time these are the state's resources that are being given to a private corporation at the same time so there's like another level of problem right there yeah. you know yeah yeah and and the thing you know because it's not it's not just um executive and uh, and, and, and legislature, but it's also judiciary, right? So we talked about the slap before. So it's not only that these, these groups are being, um, are being done um, by insidious, you know, groups like, i.e. the state and corporations, but they have no, um, they have no legal recourse because they're already being done one way by, by, by laws. Like every tentacle of the state is being used to facilitate capital yeah. like you're saying it's the judiciary it's the executive and then even down to like the very local levels so we've oh, spoken before oh, on the podcast about you know how the thai state will facilitate the building of wats like mm. buddhist mm. temples in these small non but buddhism isn't uh, a state uh, isn't religions. a state religion what are you talking about <laughs> And so the idea there is to like tieify mm. these people, which is the people we're talking about. Some people accept it, some people don't. Um, but then that makes it easier to make those people beneficial towards this, the imperial core of the Thai state, right? And yeah. and uh, and you know, this this is kind of you you see this stuff going on, right? As well as like the very explicit. Uh, heavy hand of the state like we're talking about with the police showing up there's been like this soft power going on there for a long time right yeah it's almost like you have to get the state to come in if you want any certain benefits right if you want citizenship if you want some kind of development right education or medicine i mean these communities aren't totally isolated right i mean omkoi sells tomatoes and pumpkins and they've always been connected to the market you know for a long time so let's just um I just want to, yeah, expand out a little bit. Like we're saying, upland people in Thailand, they're in extremely precarious positions when it comes to land rights and kind of access to their livelihood. And a lot of the time when we're saying livelihood, we're talking about uh, the environment around the where they live. So the forest where they'll go foraging, which they depend upon for food and whatnot. And also they'll usually have like fair, relatively small agricultural areas. And a lot of the time they won't own the land to their, maybe they'll own the land to their house, but often not in times they won't own the land to the agricultural areas. And certainly they won't be allowed uh, to forage in a lot of situations. Yeah. Uh, could, could you expand on that a little bit? Well, Omko is a bit, unique I guess for me with all the other Karen villages I've been in most of them are in the national parks or these special reserves 
forest preserves. Omkoe, I do not think, is in, they designated as a degraded forest, right? And this is the thing, like, there's been multiple times in the 80s where forest is designated in this way in order to attract business, right? In order to say, okay, we can start logging here. Oh, so they're like, this is shitty forest, there's no need to protect it. Yeah, you know, so in this way, like, Omkoe, they still don't have the, the land titles. Right. So is it that like is that designation of what do you what what was the term um, degraded forest right Yeah Yeah is that designation essentially was that put in place to make it easier to do stuff like these this these mining projects Yeah I, I mean I don't know like how kind of conspiracy conspiracy like this is right like if we we, we are very conspiratorial <laughs> on the podcast so please go ahead because there's many, you know, different designations, right? You got, and they all have different rules of if you can mm-hmm. use the products in that forest, if you can collect mushrooms or cut a tree, if it's a watershed. It's just so complex, right? Like every category gets so much more specific, you know. And it, in a way, it seems almost random of how they classify this. It doesn't seem like it's pure science. And then you'll have corrupt forest officials, you know. I mean, I saw some, you know, there was an article, or no, like, a, like an academic article about in the 1980s, you know, of uh, Tuxin, I guess people related, not, you know, a guy related to Tuxin, making sure this kind of got, de- this area got, not Omgoya, but somewhere else, got designated as a degraded, right, degraded forest, so, mm. so they were allowed to attract foreign investment, not even foreign investment, I guess some domestic capital, right, to try to just enhance their wealth, I guess, increase their wealth, so it's, it's always complicated within these different departments, you know. Even the state, we can't really act like it's monolithic, right? Like, these departments are always fighting each other and for more power, right? And, you know, some will be pro-Indigenous can live there, you know, because then they'll have more administration, you know, territory. But then the, mm. you know, forestry department will say, no, you know, this is our territory because it's considered forest. So it's a bit complex, you know, in this way, you know. No, I, I just wanted to make a really specific sort of have specific question um, about designating about designating forest as degra- uh, degraded forest. Um, is there any is there any way they can like sort of fudge it so it becomes a degraded forest? Like the criteria that you have, can they expand the the forest area to include sort of places where there's a, there's 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 bad ecology or something? Um, like say for example. Like there's there's a there's a forest. Ninety percent of the forest is fine. Ten percent of it is what makes it degraded. The fact that they've included that ten percent within the classification of the fo- forest boundaries allows it to become a degraded forest and therefore expand the the amount of like logging that can be done, as opposed to that initial sort of. Pit. Do do pe- do mm. they often like sort of do that kind of gerrymandering type situation? I couldn't tell you for sure, but I feel like they do. <laughs> I feel like I'd be shocked if they didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the thing is, you know, like all forests, you know, during, you know, especially in the north, you know, when you had Britain and especially Britain, right, who needed all this teak for Mm -hmm. the, you know, colonization and stuff, you know, it was all in the north. So all of these areas could be considered degraded. You know, it's not natural forest anymore. Even though it's beautiful, it's secondary forest. it seems like anyone can just say, like, this is not the natural forest, therefore it's degraded, you know. Mm. Or, you know, yeah, I, I believe, though, that there's a lot of this type of gerrymandering, I guess, with, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah I could just... sort of describe it. <laughs> um, I mean, so this kind of, just to go back to my earlier question, you know, it seems like, you know, what you described is a bit different from what I described in that there are a lot of cases where areas that indigenous people, are, upland indigenous people living are designated as uh, reserves or something like this, where, you know, you're not allowed to cut down trees, you're not allowed to yeah. forage or expand your farmland in any way. And that's often a concern um, for local people. It's often a big problem for local people. Um, and so they lose in that situation, right? Yeah. The indigenous people lose. And it sounds like the indigenous people lose in the alternative situation yeah. when you're allowed to develop in the forest. So it seems like there really is no win yeah, yeah. for indigenous upland yeah, people. For sure. It's the, I mean, it seems like the only reason they were allowed to have this mining go on was because it was classified as degraded. Right? Mm. Yeah, you know, it is like a kind of polemic um, in the conversation about protecting forests, you know, in terms of conservation discourse, in terms of like, you have people versus the environment is how it's often framed. But then at the same time, there are a lot of this, when we're talking about these upland people in Southeast Asia, historically, they have cohabited with the forest in a non harmful way. And it's when the lowland people start expanding into those areas. Am I wrong about this? You're kind of half shaking your head, half nodding. Well, I'm. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of try to watch out for romanticizing, you know. Sure. Um, and in a way, I like that. Yeah. This there's there's a reason why the Koran are so famous, and no one else, you know, no one cares about all these other ethnic groups, right? It's kind of they have a monopoly on this kind of forest conservation, right? Whereas now the the Lahu and the Mong, they're all forest destroyers, you know. So it's uh, it's just in that way. You know, but yeah. So, so is that is that symbiosis kind of narrative that I was kind of drawing out? Is that how, how accurate is that historically and contemporarily? I think they change. You know, they. I think the Karen are smart. You know, and they kind of they've always been able to kind of get around. You know, all the different different kingdoms going on. Right? They've always stayed. You know, this kind of like Zomia type mm. hypothesis. You know, if you stay away and you keep your head down, like no one's gonna take you out. Right. I feel like they've kind of used this kind of new kind of indigenous movement to their advantage, right? It's a political strategy. And now you get different ones as well, right? You'll have some Korean groups who are using science instead of local knowledge to support their, you know, that they can live in this land. But I'm, I don't know, like when I go to these Korean villages, of course, I, I love the tradition and respect it and stuff, but they're not like some different type of people, right? Like mm. sometimes when we talk about them, yeah, like we're you know, a little in Marxist kind of thing, right? Where we're all kind of workers, you know, like I'm, I'm for cultural difference and all this. But for me, the, the big thing is they need their land, you know, whereas they're making it about culture. And but then that's where it connects, right? The land is their culture, right? The shifting cultivation, you know, it's this thing about right class versus identity politics, right? Mm. And, you know, I feel like as you know, Marxism has developed where we were able to, you know, we've seen what we messed up before, right? If you look at all these, like in Vietnam and Laos, right? A lot of the ethnic groups fought against the communists, right? In Latin America mm -hmm. as well, because the communists did not respect their culture, right? And their traditions. So I feel like we've moved on past this and we all kind of know, like, all right. <laughs> but yet it's still here, right? It's still a, it's a, it's a strategy that indigenous groups are still using 
Mm. And I don't know if it's the right way to go, right? So, so you kind of, you can see the Karen and the other indigenous groups there. Do you think they're like influenced by Western identity politics kind of discourse and they're kind of moving in that direction? I think so. I think, you know, mm. we can't act like they're isolated, right? A lot of the knowledge that they get is from outside NGOs and academics coming in, right? I mean, it's all symbiosis, I guess. We're all sharing knowledge, right? Mm. But we can't act like we have isolated, authentic groups on the one hand and then like kind of Thai imperialism or Western imperialism on the other, right? This dualist, mm. it's a little simplified, right? Mm. Um, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're guilty of that, frankly. Um, but it is hard to draw these incredibly nuanced narratives at the same time, you know what I mean? But yeah, when, like when I go, I love, you know, it, the culture, like food and maybe going to the weddings and seeing them, you know, tie something on the hand, right? And spirits and spirit houses and different ways of farming. They have their own way of life. But in the end of the day, it's, it's still economics, right? And the land, <laughs> they need that land, right? And without that land, they don't have their identity. It, 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 to go back to what you say about land rights being their, their, their identity and the, the differentiation um, between us and them being limited, uh, absolutely, because, like, you know, you take away... Uh, the, 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 sorry, the, um, the matter that's being presented has, is, is two matters, when in reality it is one. They, they say, one, there are, uh, there's, a, there's a question of um, indigenous culture, and then the other one, there is a question of indigenous access to land. The, the real sort of the real question is um, about the relationship between culture and access to land and and so it, it it's more about it, it's less about culture and access to land and it's more about them as a group being allowed to sort of um, operate in in, 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 a, in a way they they wish to operate um, if that if that makes sense yeah. well it sounds like you're talking about self-determination right and that's that's really what what yeah. we could ask for, yeah, yeah, and 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 obviously, you know, uh, not not to go off in a bit, but um, self determination is the weirdest part of uh, neoliberalism or whatever you want to call the governing system of the world. So every country has self determination, but groups inside countries that wish to become like equitable to the power of a, a current country doesn't have the right to self determination. We sort democracy of, baby you just produce more we, people we, we and need to you get right to determination we need to stop seeing like the state <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of internalized statism and I, I don't mean statism in like the um the bootlicking i mean like in in believing the primacy of the nation state as the as the most democratic form of governmental organization or social organization yeah so it's one of those it's one of those situations it's strange to me too you know how even these communities, right, these current communities, once they, you know, you have some organizations that unite them, right, all these different Karen communities, mm. and, but they also seem a bit, you know, they're all Karen, you know, and they have similar problems, but they don't seem too much like their brothers and sisters or something. And more so if they're talking about the current state in Burma, you know, with Thai Karen. For me, it's, you know, it's just like, because, you know, it's about if we need, if we want change, right, then we have to somehow create some unity and solidarity right mm. and yet it still seems like it's just it's so local right like after let's say Omkoi wins like I know Hitler 9 they were huge in the 80s Karen activist group right and then they got kind of they got some rights to their land 
and they can still do shifting cultivation and everything. And now they just do their own thing, right? They're not involved with any any other current. You know, maybe they'll do some Facebook posts of, yeah, hashtag this or that. Mm. But that's the thing about this kind of localism and cultural, you know, like cultural specificity, right? Of It's all about small local movements, right? It's hard to get them to keep on going and put the collective over the this local community, right? Um, so I know your battery is running out. So I just wanted to go back a little bit and talk about the activism uh, among Upland people uh, against these kind, this kind of capital parliamentary system, which is fucking them over. And I just wanted to highlight that, you know, there have been activists who have been murdered. There have been people do get beaten up. People do for example, get like, uh, like there are stories like cops plant drugs in the car and then they arrest them for drugs charges, they go to jail, stuff like this. Um, so this is a real threat, right? And um, I mean, could, could you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the more heavy handed responses that, that have happened in past? And, you know, hopefully that, that isn't in the future for Omkoi, but I think it's important that we know how far the capital parliamentary system is willing to go to you know, continue its encroachment. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, you have that. What happened recently in um, in that national park, Krachan, Krachin, the this small community that went back up. It's been like a twenty or thirty year thing, and you also got the Billy, yeah, right? They burnt the village down, yeah. right? Oh, Keng yeah. Krachan, right? Pechaburi, yeah. Yeah, that's Pechaburi. also where Billy was. You know, the current activist who. Oh yeah, was yeah assassinated. Well, he was Showed disappeared, us. and then they found yeah, his remains. And, and then yeah, he appeared. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, appeared in a barrel, right? Mm. So, callback. Yeah, I don't know how how bad it gets. Some, you know, because yeah, there's just a bunch of these cases, right, where they get disappeared. Yeah, and I think Thailand is one of the you know worst in regards, one of the most dangerous in regards to journalists and kind of activists that are going, talking, speaking out against mm. some of these, you know, companies or the government, mm. you know. But yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't know too much, actually. Like, it's just there's so many cases, right? I don't know. Yeah. Some, and yeah, that's another thing. It's just every year, you know, or every couple months, there's another problem, right? And it's big, and then it fizzles out, right? There's no one trying to, like, create the conditions where, you know, to create a foundation where this can develop. There's like just spontaneous anger and then it fizzles out, right? And the lack of unity between those different cases, right? Mm. Well, on that bleak note, um, let's just hope that, because we like to end on a note of optimism, let's just hope that the kind of movement, the larger movement in Thailand, democracy movement, whatever you call it, can, I don't know, maybe turn their attention a little bit. We always say this, we say, hey, democracy movement, look at prisons. Hey, democracy movement, look at land rights for upland people. You know what I mean? But yeah, you know what? Look at land rights for upland people and living rights and what have you. So, I mean, hopefully you never know, something might come of it. Personally, I'm a bit skeptical. Um, we didn't even talk about the Thai perception of upland people, um, which can be pretty bad. Um, but yeah, so I mean, anything else you want to add? uh before before we call it a day yeah i, I just want to remind everyone um as gabriel hinted earlier um ecology is a social question so remember that when we're, we're talking about 
um, the nature and the world around us, and we're also, we're also talking about how it affects us um, in a in a non-hierarchical way, in in the sense that we are within nature, not without. Thank you. The climate crisis is a human crisis. <laughs> uh, what's the line? The the the, the ecological crisis is a social crisis. Something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Satu. Yeah. all right folks so uh thank you very much uh hisote for joining us and uh yeah we'll catch you next week great take care take care